Carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Jeremiah Rowe. And I'm Bella Deshantz-Cook. Today, we're going to talk to Alex Holden, founder and chief information security officer at Hold Security, a company that has been known for its threat intelligence work and dark web monitoring. Alex has a fascinating background and is originally from Ukraine. He's been tracking the situation closely and is quoted in the media for his insights and expertise especially when it comes to how various Russian and Ukrainian hacker groups are getting involved in the conflict. This is a really important and relevant conversation. We'll hear more from Alex after a quick word from our sponsors. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. Synac gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's, uh, It's certainly great to have you here. It's a pleasure. It's nice to meet you. Getting started, I'd like to focus a little bit around your background and uh, sort of the transition from immigrating from the Ukraine to the United States. I know you've got a really interesting background there. I kind of was wondering if you could let us all know how that transition happened and how you got first into the business of cybersecurity. Absolutely. And it's a very interesting journey indeed, because never in my life I thought I would be in this position in this country, looking at the world uh, from the vantage point that I am looking at right now. uh, I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, many, many, many years ago. And my family lived in Kiev for a very, very long time. In fact, my uh, grandmother moved into what uh, we now called the heart of Kiev, the main square, back in the 1919, and that's where all these events unfolding right now. So everything that I'm seeing, I saw as a child, as a peaceful landscape. But after Chernobyl, my life, my family life had changed because uh, the Chernobyl disaster required us to escape Kiev uh, for several months. Were you around Chernobyl? That was, wow. Kiev is actually about 100 miles south from Chernobyl. So the incident really happened in very close proximity. The entire population of Kiev got this uh, terrible dose of radiation, not as bad as um, some of the neighboring places to Chernobyl, but escaping process from Kiev for me, being just uh, you know in the middle school was a, a very tra- uh, traumatic experience. Then we came back to Kiev just for a couple months for my parents to find option to move to Moldova. But from 1986 to 1988, we lived in Moldova. My parents really not couldn't find uh, their own way of life in uh, this other Soviet republic. So they decided to leave Soviet Union. This was not the first time they tried to leave the Soviet Union. The first time they tried in 1979. And they were terribly prosecuted for that uh, because of uh, Olympics uh, and Afghanistan. So they were courageous enough in 1980. 
eight tried to do it again, and they were successful. We are refugees from the Soviet Union in the United States, and I call Milwaukee home for the past 32 years, very proudly so. And when I came here, I was a very awkward kid because I was uh, I, I couldn't find my spot being brainwashed by Soviet regime. Yet I found that my parents blackmailed me emotionally since I was five to be an engineer. So you know everything I could remember as an adult, you know, was uh, like you know from age of five, like you're going to be an engineer, you're going to be an engineer. But after my first semester as an engineer, I, I got a job for professor at University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the job was a, a developer for Visual Basic. During the interview, I was asked if I know much about Visual Basic. I said yes. After that, I went to the library to figure out what Visual Basic is. <laughs> but I successfully started working there, started exploring technology. I was in the right place in the right time. Eventually, I started working in IT, abandoning my pursuit of engineering degree, and start being jack of all trades. The pivotal component was that my interest in cybersecurity started in the 90s, but only the 9-11 had changed my life quite significantly. When 9-11 happened, I was working for a year and a half already in an investment company in a large brokerage firm. On September 14th of 2001, I went into the office of our CIO, and I asked him a question. What if the next attack is a cyber attack? He said, well, why don't you investigate that? So he gave me old server. The server was 140 pounds. So me and a couple of coworkers carried it to my car, and I drove it around for a while until my friends came over and helped me carry it to my home. But this server became the basis of our technology. Hearing you talk about this, like I think it's really clear how you can sense your passion and excitement even when you're talking about things like from years ago, right? And you mentioned like kind of sort of falling into cybersecurity and being at the right place at the right time, being there when all of this was just starting to happen. What was driving you in these moments where you're kind of just so deep in cybersecurity and this research? Like what was what was motivating you, I guess? I'm just curious because I think like for me, I was not in cybersecurity at its kind of beginnings. And it always makes me really interested and excited to hear from folks that were there in kind of the early days. Like what was the motivation? What was the energy there? There was curiosity. And curiosity was the main driving force. But the second driving force was the realization that the world is not perfect. Um, you know, I always say that in the 90s, cybersecurity couldn't exist at the same level as it was in 2000s and later on, because our computers didn't stay up long enough to be exploited. Anytime you try to run something, it just crashes. It's um, you know, the play dead response to not only vulnerabilities, but the regular use. But as technology started evolving, you, you know, we were the first ones asking the right questions. Is this secure? Is this secure by design? And when I started getting answers from companies, the companies that uh, you know we kind of idolize, like Microsoft, McAfee, Cisco, hey, it's secure. And when we prove them wrong, that's you know the greatest satisfaction ever. So that kind of lasted the entire decade from 2000 to 2010, and that was a kind of a great experience for me. So shifting to more like current day, what we've got going on in cybersecurity, you know, does your 
specific backgrounds. We've talked a little bit about your background, where you're from. Does your background and maybe even like your language experience, the knowledge that you have of places like Russia and Ukraine, does this help inform some of the work that you do today in regards to dark web monitoring? Like, are you able to maybe access certain things or understand certain things that other folks in this industry just might not? Absolutely. So just to finish the story that I started about my background in um, uh, 2009, and even before that, uh, the financial world uh, went through a big change. And I decided to make a transition away from the financial industry. In early 2010, I left and I started working for a small startup. And uh, in that startup, heading the cybersecurity group, I was uh, asked by customers time and again, why did this happen to me? So we were not only doing pen testing, not only finding the vulnerabilities, but we, in coming in to the incident, some people said, okay, where's my data? Who did this? Why is this happening? And I realized that for 10 years of experience, even being a chief information security officer for a major financial organization, I never asked a question. Who is on the other side? So I started looking and I started trying to figure out the linguistics and the cultural background did play a pivotal role because I could understand certain things. I can interpret and then also understand the set of mind of the, these uh, folks. Now, I have to tell you that my Russian language is very weak because I left as a child and um, my linguistic development stopped quite a bit. So I talk without the accent, but I write with quite a few errors. So kind of got stuck in the middle of it. My Ukrainian is, um, you know, I understand 100%, but unfortunately I don't have any practice speaking. But understanding the culture, understanding the people gave me an opportunity to make that next step and start trying to figure out who the bad guys are. Having good idea of how defense works, I was able to quickly understand how offensive part works. And I figured out one thing that still probably most folks don't get is that catching up with technology is extremely difficult. The zeros and ones that are running across our wires they are always mutating. They are encrypted with ways that we can't decrypt them ever. But we have one vulnerable part continuously of this chain, which is human. And we have a lot of legal safeguards saying that even if I know that this is a bad guy and it's their system, you can't hack it. There is nothing in the law about performing SQL injection or buffer overflow on the hacker's brain themselves. So starting to work on social engineering, I was um, able to understand the cyber criminals much better. I start building the practice and um, eventually evolving that startup was where I was working into my own company. And we build components around three basic things around social engineering, building a CIA-level practice on the dark web, not only in Russian, but other communities like Chinese and many other different threat markets. We build technology that is supporting our communications with the bad guys and also allowing us to get into their systems seamlessly once they invite us in. And the last thing is artificial intelligence. Because um, we are heavily leveraging human brain, we can let humans be teachers of uh, little kids, um, virtual kids in artificial intelligence, and they can find more information faster 
and learning to be more like humans. So you mentioned like this practice of getting in, inside the mind of the hackers or getting inside the mind of the attacker and kind of understanding their motivation and and where they're coming from. What is that what does that look like for you or what are what are some of the things that you find you are able to understand about an attacker that maybe other folks wouldn't? Most of them are normal human beings. Yes, they're criminals. That is given. But many of us had ability to interact with other flawed humans. At the end of the day, you figure out what kind of person you're dealing with. And you figure out what, not what their weaknesses are, but what makes them interesting. Not motivations per se. One of the things I'm, what I'm trying to explain is that um, the most people call dark web, they call forums. Forums to me is not dark web. It's a marketplace. It's a public marketplace. But this is an introduction point for many folks. It's um, ability to meet new people, so, so, so to speak. What we are doing is we are establishing one-on-one conversations, going into kinships rather than friendships or anything else. And we create to the bad guy a best friend. This best friend they're going to be confiding to. When somebody is selling something, I'm not going to buy anything. I don't buy stolen data. I can actually social engineer that person to talk to me, to tell me a story, to tell their story. I'm not going to ask them anything. I'm going to keep talking to them. And after a certain amount of time, they're going to offer me everything they have as bragging, as um, confiding. And through this type of kinship of even friendship, I'm going to get much further into the game. I'm going to get introduced to the right people. I'm going to have a friend and a protector in that particular group, getting much better vantage point than any technology can afford. So you're almost like infiltrating as a not malicious actor. You're you're literally getting into the into the spaces of the internet where bad actors are having those conversations about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Is that right? Absolutely. And then uh, once we get there, we start talking one-on-one through normal means of communication, obviously virtually. And then at the end of the day, we starting to get further. We starting to converse quite significantly to get inside of their heads. Establishing a level of trust and camaraderie almost. Precisely. And it's also an art. Because um, when I talk to them personally, I'm going to have the same hobby, same interests that they do. It may take several approaches. Because uh, in order to figure out their hobbies and their interests, I need to tell them something about me. But if things don't work out, my next person approaching them is going to be exactly similar to them. But professionally, I'm going to be opposite. I'm going to be completely opposite to their needs. So if they're a leader, I'm a follower. They're technologists, I'm a creative person. And I'm going to be really that professional second half to that person because uh, that's where this uh, friendship can exist. There is no competition. In hobbies, well, we don't really compete with our friends on our hobbies like fishing or you know anything like that. that. So we, we will talk and we will actually share a lot of points of interest. So being sort of what 
these individuals need you to be and acting in a very complimentary way to establish trust has obviously led you to be able to identify some information about these individuals and things that they're doing and and maybe some critical discoveries that maybe others have not been able to come to first. And so I know with your background, you often talk about some of these discoveries that you've been able to obtain through these methods. I was wondering if you could let our listeners know some of what these things are. My company's resume is very storied with uh, different breach discoveries. I'm going to name a couple and then maybe zero in on a few. Uh, we were the ones who discovered the breach at Adobe, where almost everything that Adobe had, including source code and the data, was stolen. We discovered the target breach, which is um, probably one of the landmark major breaches uh, over 2010s. We discovered components of many breaches like um, um, the Equifax uh, breach. We're the ones who discovered the J.P. Morgan Chase breach in 2014. But before that, we found that the gang had breached 420,000 websites, stealing at the time unsinkable 1.2 billion credentials. We were the ones who discovered the Yahoo breach in most of the mega breaches of 2016. Just a couple of years ago, we found the U.S., hospitals under attack uh, from the Riot um, ransomware gang, and so on and so forth. Most of this came as a combination of technology and social engineering. How do you begin to approach revealing this kind of information to the organizations and company and the public at large? Uh, you, you, um, it, it takes a lot of courage. <laughs> and um, a lot of these things, um, you know, I started my career in threat intelligence, in many cases, quite painfully, I do have this weird accent. And a person with that weird accent calling you and telling you that you have a breach, not always, you know, that really compels to shoot the messenger. So working with uh, very brilliant individuals, I learn how to do the right approach, how to do it legally, how to do it ethically. And in many cases, there is a certain rules of engagement where both sides come out and you know, have this forthcoming relationship. We work with law enforcement. We work with lots of other different groups. You know, it's not still not coming off uh, seamlessly, but working with a lot of victims, uh, we are able to give them peace of mind that, hey, this had happened or is this happening, but there are ways to work around it. There is a way to prevent from these things from getting worse. Yeah. Shifting over to what's currently going on in Ukraine and Russia, if we can, You've been following the situation, I would imagine, fairly closely. I'm kind of curious as to what whether you're surprised by the level of cyber activity coming along from both sides or what your perspective is around that. And do you ultimately expect to see more coming out of Russia with attacking Ukrainian infrastructure? We watched this um, unravel as a slow car wreck that resulted in very unfortunate uh, situation right now. And I'm also a big student of history, looking at what had happened before. Russia did start using cyber warfare a while ago. We were even investigating the Russian tampering in U.S. elections in 2016, having our report go to U.S. Congress. So we understood how these things worked. But even before that, going to 2007, we watched Russia attack Estonia. 
this attack was not boots on the ground. It was all in cyberspace. And within hours, Russia dispatched, rendered useless most of Estonian communication networks. Internet, uh, phone signals, um, they took down much of the government sites. They shut down some of the utilities. They took out the banking system and some of the uh, businesses, small and large. So Russia knows how to wage that cyber warfare. And they continuously keep showing us that they can, including some things that you know we find by a fluke or by investigation, like uh, solar winds. So I think Russia is in a very powerful position to flex their cyber muscle to do damage. I don't think they're doing it right now, you know, just because of their capabilities. And just think that with their boots on the ground operation, the, the war that they're uh, waging in Ukraine, they already have access to our to Ukrainian data centers. They have access to many different assets. So for them to start doing more damage is relatively trivial. With that said, the hacktivist activities are at their all-time high. These are mostly amateurs or you know people who have professions in cybersecurity, and they waging that war against uh, Ukrainians versus Russians. And there are a lot of uh, different sides pitching in on very unusual uh, fronts. So where we are is very unpredictable, very dangerous, but um, we are getting more and more information about this um, every day, and uh, it's been shocking as much as um, you know, um, understanding what's going on there on the ground as well. I wanted to ask more about the, there have been a lot of hackers in the United States and really across the globe doing this kind of like hacktivism work, attacking Russian targets. And I wanted to ask, you know, do you think that this effort is justified or do you think, is it beneficial or do they risk potentially escalating, you know, the cyber side of this conflict or or are there other positive or negative aspects of this that we're maybe not thinking about? I'm going to be critical of this because, um, you know, we need to be realistic. You know, if you hear about, uh, you know, start hearing things about folks in Alaska in their backyards starting to put, uh, you know, build uh, homemade rocket launchers and lobbing those rockets toward uh, Russia across, you know, uh, the channel, that would be still considered to be the declaration of war by Russians. And because uh, Vladimir Putin is not the most stable and trustworthy person, we don't know what to expect from him. So for us to start weaponizing our capabilities and launching those attacks from our systems or from uh, other um, systems against Russia can trigger that unfortunate response. Now, our government, governments around the world, are supporting Ukraine in the defensive position. We help them with their defenses. We are helping, um, we can help them with defending and even teaching their cybersecurity professionals to do what they need to do. Ukraine is at war and it's their war to wage and we are, we need to support them, perhaps give them tools, give them knowledge, but definitely not join their ranks because uh, the response can be quite devastating. NATO itself has provisions that in case of certain level of cyber attack, they would consider it to be a declaration of war. 
Russia, which is uh, much less trustworthy and intelligent than NATO, probably has the same thing. So for us to trigger that switch that, uh, you know, has already been triggered by Ukraine in Putin's mind, the repercussions are just terrible. So what are you seeing overall in terms of Ukraine's effects to coordinating cyber attacks through their IT army that they're trying to collectively gather? And are you seeing, is that effective in that approach? I think we are dealing with very ad hoc effort. Thankfully, amount of volunteers, thankfully, amount of knowledge is not lacking. Hopefully, you know, this would build certain capabilities for cyber defense and even cyber offense as um, a more cohesive unit in the future. But now, as Ukrainians are starting to struggle, like their IT army, they are not always ready and they're not always weaponized uh, strong enough against uh, Russia. What helps quite a bit is that the Ukrainian sympathizers inside Russia itself. So some of them are opening those proverbial gates for ushering cyber attacks. So inside a threat inside of Russia is great. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. From an insider perspective, almost. And that's normal because there are a lot of uh, Ukrainians live in Russia. A lot of Russians understanding the plight of uh, Ukrainians and that there is very little animosity in the average Russian against the average Ukrainian. So they are helping the, these things, helping out, maybe not with the actual uh, opening gates, but giving the map on how to open the gates. You know, just in a short while, we had seen uh, breaches in um, Gazprom, which is uh, the biggest uh, energy company in um, Russia. We've seen breaches at uh, Roscosmos, which is um, our NASA, or within Yandex, which is um, our equivalent of Google. So think about the impact and the seriousness of these attacks. Recently, Brian Krebs published a story that quoted you talking about the use of protest wear. And I wanted to, to hear from you what exactly that is and also how it's being used currently. So in the standard ways that we are seeing that uh, a lot of uh, companies today, software companies, hardware companies, refusing to work with Russia and in many different ways. But what the, can open source community or even closed source community do? And a lot of open source containers start incorporating their own statements in support of Ukraine in its war. They start uh, putting messages in their open source software, harmless messages saying, hey, we stand with Ukraine. But all of a sudden, there is an escalation of this. They are realizing that the Russian developers, or Russian software users, are using these plugins, using these components in their world. So they are starting to write additional code within uh, their software, not only to show their support for Ukraine, but make sure to make sure that uh, this uh, iron curtain that Russian citizens surrounded with, where they're not getting the information, they are getting through that curtain with messages within their software. So they try to detect if a computer is located in Russia. Maybe they look at the time zones. So there is actually a code to detect what time zone you're in. And if you're, let's say, in Moscow time zone or Magadan time zone or something like that, you're going to see this message while we are here in U.S. font. 
what about your IP address? Is your IP address um, Russian IP address or is it uh, somewhere else? And lots of other different components that you, the software can decide if it's uh, located in Russia or not. And then it's behaving differently. So propaganda and the support statements are still okay. Now some of the uh, folks in Ukraine start modifying their code, not only to show a propaganda statement, but maybe create a backdoor to that system that is in Russia. Maybe it will not only create a backdoor, but maybe it will cripple the operations of a device. Maybe it will take extra CPU cycles. Maybe it even will encrypt or infect the system with malware. So all of a sudden, uh, this movement starts getting further. I felt that it's unfortunate that um, this implanting of malware in your open source code that is triggered only in Russia being uh, picked up by other folks outside of Ukraine. But uh, it's still you know, part of support of Ukraine campaign. There are also caveats. What if this software is supporting systems that used outside of Russia? Yeah, that was my question right there. Absolutely. So this software may be incorporated by Russian developers, some of them still working for companies outside of Russia, and the impact may be global. You know, and I've seen some really bad code as well put in by developers, Ukrainian developers in their uh, GitHub repositories, for example, they're trying to do something, but checks are not absolute checks. So the time zone check. Um, you know, I know certain folks who travel with uh, their laptops, and the last place they've been maybe was Russia, and they never changed the time zone. What if somebody sets the time zone by mistake? What if your know, neighboring areas in Baltic states, in uh, Belarus, in uh, Kazakhstan, or anywhere else set their time to the Russian time zone, IP addresses, um, you know, we don't always know how things work. I can give you an example. The local daycare here in Milwaukee for a long time was using a service to monitor their play area, public areas in this care facility. And the servers were unfortunately located in Russia because uh, the owner signed up for a service, didn't know what, what uh, you know, he went with um, good service with a uh, lowest bidder. But some of the monitoring is going through Russian servers. That's not inherently evil. But the side effects, the side effects that can go further. And don't forget, Russians are copying Ukrainians and Ukrainians copying Russians in their attack patterns. So now the message is that let's think about it. Let's think if uh, now Russian repositories potentially containing malicious code that would trigger everywhere but Russia. Yeah, I think this directly speaks to a, sort of a supply chain problem too, right? And third-party library usage through the point of open source and things being specifically tampered with to affect a goal that is in their eyes temporary, sort of a temporary goal to fix a problem, yet it has long-lasting impacts that you just mentioned. That's scary to me, personally. Absolutely. For a very long while, we had a friendly international community of developers. And a lot of brilliant folks came out from Russia, a lot of them still in Russia, who are developers, not soldiers. And we didn't draw these lines and integrated plugins um, and uh, software components um, and third-party dependencies 
into our software, not looking who wrote the software. And so did Russians. So this segmentation of our development environments couldn't happen fast, and we can't do much about it uh, right now. A lot of updates are automated. A lot of components are automated. So that's also a terrible thing to think about right now. I also want to talk about Conti leaks. So first, can you explain to our listeners what Conti is and then also why these leaks are so important? My company been monitoring the gang that's now known as Conti for a very long time. We went back over a decade of history of the gang. We heard different names like Emetet, Trigbot, Ryak, now Conti. And a lot of folks don't associate them as one. But there is a very clear line of succession as products or as a malicious guys moved from one gang to another. As one gang stopped existing, they start evolving into something else. I'm going to give you a brief history of um, ransomware from this gang. Because uh, for many years, Ryak ransomware was uh, terrorizing folks around the world. And until 2019, the number six targeted country in the world by Trigbot slash Ryak ransomware was Russia itself. After 2019, somebody inside of the group says, we are no longer looking at Russia. We're excluding Russia and, uh, for that matter, quite a few uh, former Soviet uh, republics. The gang that dealt with Ryak felt that their ransomware product is inferior to Conti, and they start working quite heavily with Conti, eventually dropping off and discontinuing Ryak, discontinuing the new ransomware product called Diablo, and Conti became their only main source of ransomware. Over the past two months, because of political and social tensions, the Trigbot group dissolved, and Amatet dissolved for the most part as well. So these groups got absorbed into Conti gang over the course of years. So this is a really composite of almost 1,000 people who went through the gang on different levels over the years. And when you say gang, you mean, just to clarify, let me make sure that I'm on the same page, like a, a group of individuals all working on ransomware, is that correct? Not only ransomware. Trigbot okay. is also a financial information stealer. Amatet is also an infection agent. So imagine that this is not a gang even, but really well-organized group of individuals, almost like a real company. Because they have different groups. They have HR. They have accounting. They got uh, uh, business analytics. They got IT. They got developers. So they really build equivalent of an organization. But their like product or project that they're working on is malicious software, basically? Absolutely. So okay. th their goal is to steal data and encrypt our systems and extort. So this is a really evil organization that uh, operated uh, within Russia, but uh, with some members being outside of Russia, in Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan. And they all were trying to use their technical skills, social skills, to harm the rest of the world. 
so a thousand people is a lot of people and operating like an organization is, well, it's interesting, right? I'm curious, how do they not get caught or are they known about and just allowed to operate? Within Russia itself, you can't really exist as a huge group of people and not have uh, Russian government pay attention. For that matter, you know, if um, you know, we really create an evil club that uh, would be targeting Russia, I, I would assume our club would be known to law enforcement in the U.S. as well. So it's, it's not like they're invisible. They've been in front uh, headlines in U.S. publications, media. They uh, did a lot of harm. So Russia is not dumb. And that's you know very definitely true that um, the Russian uh, law enforcement and government knew about this and they let this gang exist. So what a bit more about the gang. And uh, the gang obviously communicated with each other. But as well, they communi- uh, communicated with uh, third parties, with uh, victims, and so on and so forth. In many ways, hold security were trying to monopolize a lot of their communication channels. One of them I'm going to talk about freely, but uh, some of the social engineering components I can just describe. So they start hiring people for different jobs. And in the first and second echelon of uh, these applicants are our analysts. We're going through the interviews. We are learning. We're asking questions. One person could not be that curious to ask uh, 50 questions, but uh, 10 people asking five questions each definitely can get a lot of information. We go through different levels. We're being introduced to the gang by other uh, gang members. Once we gain some kind of um, level of respect within the gang, we start introducing our friends or ourselves. So we have the social footprint within the gang, and we also have technological footprint within the gang. Some of the systems that we have visibility with in start working as uh, data repositories for them. And obviously the communication channels that they use, we are also sitting in those channels looking at the public chats, but also looking at uh, what now is known as Conti leaks. I can tell you that um, every line of um, the information that uh, been exchanged between uh, the bad guys, we had seen happening nearly live or live as they were saying, because you guys had this torrential downpour of data dumped at uh, us about two weeks ago. We've been reading that book line by line for the past several years. And what is the goal with that information? And, and like what makes the leak of this information so important, especially right now? The leak of the information really took out the content gain. The county gang was hurting because just two weeks ago, as I mentioned, the Trickbot gang called called it quits. The county gang was um, struggling for a bit, um, you know, and they were trying to reinvent themselves. However, at the same time, we have this unprecedented events unfolding in the world. And um, uh, we got a situation unfolding where the county gang start endorsing the Russian government and Putin's actions in war. The Ukrainian researcher who had visibility and access to all this information felt that it's his part of the war and contribution. It's his position to help society to get rid of this vile gang. And he discloses information. But on a social level, if you are at all interested in threat intelligence and cybersecurity, 
I would recommend you sitting down and reading a lot of these because you're going to see how the real criminals work, how they think, how they evolve, and how the everyday gang works. This information should be taught in schools for people who want to be in cybersecurity. This information should be studied because these gangs typically work like that. And uh, you know, for me, there are no surprises. We see this information, we see some of uh, similar data every single day for over a decade. But for some of the folks who are not familiar there and have wrong impression of how the gangs operate, this is an eye-opener. So what do you think will happen with other Russian cyber criminals and sort of cyber crime games if the conflict persists? Will they be fleeing to other parts of Europe or maybe even to the Ukraine itself? We are watching a huge change in the cybersecurity threat landscape in Eastern Europe. The Ukrainian cybercrime is not dead. They're still doing certain things in the western part of Ukraine. Some of them are moving time further into Eastern Europe or Kazakhstan or other areas. And same is happening in Russia. Cyber criminals are afraid that uh, the recent crackdown of Russian government against them will continue. Cyber criminals are afraid that uh, the financial restrictions um, no longer will allow them to get any financial gains. We also see um, the change in the threat landscape where cyber criminals don't want to participate in the war. They don't want to take one side or the other. They are peaceful criminals, so to speak, yet they are trying to get financial advantage, which is not viable in Russia or Ukraine right now. I think things will evolve. The cyber warfare that's happening right now would get stronger and I think it will be persistent for years to come. I know that this is is probably a really difficult time for you with everything that's going on. So first of all, I want to say a massive thank you for talking about all of this with us. Do you think that there's hope of Putin stopping this soon and putting an end to the war? I'm going to give you my opinion. Maybe not a popular opinion, but I'm a pacifist. I really think that people don't need to kill each other. There should be a war of words, but um, we are civilized enough to sit down and talk. The talks and the ability to mediate those talks should be the entire world's effort because uh, we existed, coexisted with Russia for a century under the current regime of uh, this fear of mutually assured destruction. And this should still keep us at bay. Unfortunately, the wishes of Russia to dominate Ukraine and everything around that would get worse. And if not negotiated, if not reaching some kind of peace accord, and then using sanctions and using other strong-arming on economic or social level to get Putin back under control, that I think is a very important step. I'm against a war because somebody else's children are dying. It's not Putin's um, uh, kids going there and giving their lives. And Ukraine is forced to send its kids to die to defend their country. Ukrainian cause is righteous. But unfortunately, I think that you know amount of uh, deaths would be remembered for centuries. And sooner we can stop this, 
sooner we can start uh, healing from this and you know trying to restore the world order because right now we are spiraling to toward the end of the world rather than um, to the peaceful existence i'm kind of curious as to what sort of the everyday individuals out there that want to help that maybe want to want to participate in humanitarian efforts what would you suggest that they do Again, I'm going to speak on my behalf, and uh, I'm looking at it and say, okay, well, how can I contribute? You know, uh, my family been blessed with ability to build a business, and so we have a certain amount of finances, and we are helping refugees' families in Eastern Europe. We also trying to assist uh, folks in Ukraine, but I, as cybersecurity professional, know how to help with certain skills, with technology, with defenses and even if needed with offenses. Not to intensify conflict, but really make things better. So think about what you're good at, what you have a lot of. Maybe it's time, maybe it's um, technology, maybe it's something. But I know personally number of folks, Ukrainians right now, in harm's way that's sitting there at night without electricity because they're not allowed to turn on lights. And they're horrified that they're literally alone, don't know what to do. Sometimes even the helping voice helps. So, you know, talking to some folks, and I spent um, my late afternoons uh, just doing that and um, saying, hey, everything's going to be okay. Um, just giving them something instead of fears of loneliness at night uh, to help them by, um, you know, being a, a person who speaks with them. Uh, that's also lacking in our world, unfortunately. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alex. It's such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you again. If you liked today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, share this episode with your friends. And if you haven't already, make sure to check out all the other really fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to suggestions. If you know someone we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's We're In Podcast at S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com. We're In is brought to you by Synac. If you're looking for on-demand, continuous access to the world's most skilled and trusted security researchers, you can learn more at Synac.com. Synac recently launched its Empower Partner Program so that partner organizations can more easily offer the Synac pen testing platform to their own customers. This approach helps optimize Synac partners' technical competencies and allows them to better integrate Synac into their portfolios. It's a way that partners can win new business by adding continuous, best-in-class solutions to cybersecurity, cloud, and DevSecOps offerings. Synac partners with organizations around the world to make them safer, more resistant to cyber attacks, and more capable of finding and fixing dangerous vulnerabilities before attackers are able to exploit them. Learn more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com.